As before, I will be going over some tables, and so I encourage you to follow along with the text starting on page 33 of the PDF linked in the description. This is a continuation of Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism by Vladimir Lenin. Chapter 3 Finance Capital and the Financial Oligarchy A steadily increasing proportion of capital in industry, writes Hilferding, ceases to belong to the industrialists who employ it. They obtain the use of it only through the medium of the banks which, in relation to them, represent the owners of the capital. On the other hand, the bank is forced to sink an increasing share of its funds in industry. Thus, to an ever greater degree, the banker is being transformed into an industrial capitalist. This bank capital, i.e. capital in money form, which is thus actually transformed into industrial capital, I call finance capital. Finance capital is capital controlled by banks and employed by industrialists. This definition is incomplete insofar as it is silent on one extremely important fact, on the increase of concentration of production and of capital to such an extent that concentration is leading and has led to monopoly. But throughout the whole of his work, and particularly in these two chapters preceding the one from which this definition is taken, Hilferding stresses the part played by capitalist monopolies, the concentration of production, the monopolies arising therefrom, the merging or coalescence of the banks within industry, such is the history of the rise of finance capital, and such is the content of that concept. We have to describe how, under the general conditions of commodity production and private property, the business operations of capitalist monopolies inevitably lead to the domination of a financial oligarchy. It should be noted that German, and not only German, bourgeois scholars like Reiser, Schultzegewernitz, Liefmann, and others are all apologists of imperialism and of finance capital. Instead of revealing the mechanics of the formation of an oligarchy, its methods, the size of its revenues, quote, impeccable and peccable, unquote, its connections with parliaments, etc., etc., they obscure or gloss over them. They evade these vexed questions by pompous and vague phrases, appeals to the, quote, sense of responsibility, unquote, of bank directors, by praising, quote, the sense of duty, unquote, of Prussian officials, giving serious study to the petty details of absolutely ridiculous parliamentary bills for the supervision and regulation of monopolies, playing spillikins with theories, like, for example, the following scholarly definition arrived at by Professor Leafman. Commerce is an occupation having for its object the collection, storage, and supply of goods. The professor's boldface italics. From this it would show that commerce existed in the time of primitive man who knew nothing about exchange, and that it will exist under socialism. But the monstrous facts concerning the monstrous rule of the financial oligarchy are so glaring that, in all capitalist countries, in America, France, and Germany, a whole literature has sprung up, written from the bourgeois point of view, but which, nevertheless, gives a fairly truthful picture and criticism, petty bourgeois, naturally, of this oligarchy. 
paramount importance attaches to the holding system, already briefly referred to above. The German economist, Heyman, probably the first to call attention to this matter, describes the essence of it in this way. The head of the concern controls the principal company, literally the mother company. The latter reigns over the subsidiary companies, daughter companies, which in their turn control still other subsidiaries, grandchild companies, etc. In this way, it is possible with a comparatively small capital to dominate immense spheres of production. Indeed, if holding 50% of the capital is always sufficient to control a company, the head of the concern needs only 1 million to control 8 million in the second subsidiaries. And if this interlocking is extended, it is possible with 1 million to control 16 million, 32 million, etc. As a matter of fact, experience shows that it is sufficient to own 40% of the shares of a company in order to direct its affairs, since in practice, a certain number of small, scattered shareholders find it impossible to attend general meetings, etc. The democratization of the ownership of shares, from which the bourgeois sophists and opportunist so-called social democrats expect, or say that they expect, the democratization of capital, the strengthening of the role and significance of small-scale production, etc., is in fact one of the ways of increasing the power of the financial oligarchy. Incidentally, this is why in the more advanced, or in the older and more experienced capitalist countries, the law allows the issue of shares of smaller denomination. In Germany, the law does not permit the issue of shares of less than 1,000 marks denomination, and the magnates of German finance look with an envious eye at Britain, where the issue of one pound shares, equaling 20 marks, about 10 rubles, is permitted. Siemens, one of the biggest industrialists and financial kings in Germany, told the Reichstag on June 7, 1900, that, quote, the one-pound share is the basis of British imperialism, unquote. This merchant has a much deeper and more Marxist understanding of imperialism than a certain disreputable writer who is held to be one of the founders of Russian Marxism and believes that imperialism is a bad habit of a certain nation. But the holding system not only serves enormously to increase the power of the monopolists, it also enables them to resort with impunity to all sorts of shady and dirty tricks to cheat the public. Because formally, the directors of the mother company are not legally responsible for the daughter company, which is supposed to be independent, and through the medium of which they can pull off anything. Here is an example taken from the German review, Die Bank, for May 1914. The Spring Steel Company of Kassel was regarded some years ago as being one of the most profitable enterprises in Germany. Through bad management, its dividends fell from 15% to nil. It appears that the board, without consulting the shareholders, had loaned 6 million marks to one of its daughter companies, the Hassia Company, which had a nominal capital of only some hundreds of thousands of marks. This commitment, amounting to nearly treble the capital of the mother company, was never mentioned in its balance sheets. This omission was quite legal and could be hushed up for two whole years because it did not violate any point of company law. The chairman of the supervisory board, who, as the responsible head, had signed the false balance sheets, was, and still is, the president of the Castle Chamber of Commerce. The shareholders only heard of the loan to Hassia Company long afterwards, when it had proved to be a mistake. The writer should put this word in inverted commas. 
and when Spring Steel shares dropped nearly 100% because those in the know were getting rid of them. This typical example of balance sheet jugglery, quite common in joint stock companies, explains why their boards of directors are willing to undertake risky transactions with the far lighter heart than individual businessmen. Modern methods of drawing up balance sheets not only make it possible to conceal doubtful undertakings from the ordinary shareholder, but also allow the people most concerned to escape the consequence of unsuccessful speculation by selling their shares in time when the individual businessman risks his own skin in everything he does. The balance sheets of many joint stock companies put us in mind of the palimpsests of the Middle Ages from which the visible inscription had first to be erased in order to discover beneath it another inscription giving the real meaning of the document. The simplest and therefore most common procedure for making balance sheets indecipherable is to divide a single business into several parts by setting up daughter companies or by annexing them. The advantages of this system for various purposes, legal and illegal, are so evident that big companies which do not employ it are quite the exception. As an example of a huge monopolist company that extensively employs this system, the author quotes the famous General Electric Company, the AEG, to which I shall refer again later on. In 1912, it was calculated that this company held shares in 175 to 200 other companies, dominating them, of course, and thus controlling a total capital of about 1,500 million marks. None of the rules of control, the publication of balance sheets, the drawing up of balance sheets according to a definite form, the public auditing of accounts, etc., the things about which well-intentioned professors and officials, that is, those imbued with the good intention of defending and prettifying capitalism, discourse to the public, are of any avail, for private property is sacred, and no one can be prohibited from buying, selling, exchanging, or hypothecating shares, etc. The extent to which this holding system has developed in the big Russian banks may be judged by the figures given by E. Agid, who for 15 years was an official of the Russo-Chinese Bank, and who, in May 1914, published a book not altogether correctly entitled Big Banks and the World Market. The author divides the big Russian banks into two main groups, A. Banks that come under the holding system, and B. Independent banks. Independence, however, being arbitrarily taken to mean independence of foreign banks. The author divides the first group into three subgroups. One, German holdings. Two, British holdings. And three, French holdings. Having in view the holdings and domination of the big foreign banks of the particular country mentioned. The author divides the capital of the banks into productively invested capital, industrial and commercial undertakings, and speculatively invested capital in stock exchange and financial operations. Assuming from his petty bourgeois reformist point of view that it is possible under capitalism to separate the first form of investment from the second and to abolish the second form. Here are the figures he supplies. Bank assets according to reports for October through November of 1912. Group A, four banks, Siberian Commercial, Russian, International, and Discount Bank, invested 413.7 million rubles productively 
and 859.1 million rubles speculatively, for a total of 1,272.8 million rubles. Group A, two banks, commercial and industrial, and Russo-British, invested 239.3 million rubles productively, and 169.1 million rubles speculatively, totaling 408.4 million rubles. Group A, five banks, Russian Asiatic, St. Petersburg Private, Azov Don, Union Moscow, and Russo-French Commercial, invested 711.8 million rubles productively, and 661.2 million rubles speculatively, totaling 1,373 million rubles. Subtotals for all 11 banks in Group A, 1,364.8 million rubles invested productively, and 1,689.4 million rubles invested speculatively, totaling 3,054.2 million rubles. Group B, eight banks, Moscow Merchants, Volgakama, Junker & Co, St. Petersburg Commercial, formerly Wawelberg, Bank of Moscow, formerly Ryabushinsky, Moscow Discount, Moscow Commercial, and Moscow Private, invested 504.2 million rubles productively and 391.1 million rubles speculatively, totaling 895.3 million rubles. Combined totals for Group A plus Group B, 1,869 million rubles invested productively, and 2,080.5 million rubles invested speculatively, for a grand total of 3,949.5 million rubles. According to these figures, of the approximately 4,000 million rubles making up the working capital of the big banks, more than three-fourths, that's more than 3,000 million, belong to banks which in reality were only daughter companies of foreign banks, and chiefly of Paris banks. The famous trio Union Parisienne, Paris et Paybas, and Société Générale, and of Berlin banks, particularly the Deutsche Bank and Discounto Gesellschaft. Two of the biggest Russian banks, the Russian, Russian Bank for Foreign Trade, and the International, St. Petersburg International Commercial Bank, between 1906 and 1912, increased their capital from 44 to 98 million rubles and their reserves from 15 million to 39 million, quote, employing three-fourths German capital, unquote. The first bank belongs to the Berlin Deutsche Bank Concern, and the second to the Berlin Discounto Gesellschaft. The worthy Agit is deeply indignant at the majority of the shares being held by the Berlin banks, so that the Russian shareholders are, therefore, powerless. Naturally, the country which exports capital skims the cream. For example, the Berlin Deutsche Bank, before placing the shares of the Siberian Commercial Bank on the Berlin market, kept them in its portfolio for a whole year and then sold them at the rate of 193 for 100. That is, at nearly twice their nominal value, earning a profit of nearly 6 million rubles, which Hilferding calls promoter's profits. Our author puts the total capacity of the principal St. Petersburg banks at 8,235 million rubles, well over 8,000 million, and the holdings, or rather, the extent to which foreign banks dominated them, he estimates as follows. French banks, 55%. British, 10%. German, 
The author calculates that the total of 8,235 million rubles of functioning capital, 3,687 million rubles, or over 40%, fall to the share of the Produgal and Protomet syndicates and the syndicates in the oil, metallurgical, and cement industries. Thus, owing to the formation of capitalist monopolies, the merging of bank and industrial capital has also made enormous strides in Russia. Finance capital, concentrated in a few hands and exercising a virtual monopoly, exacts enormous and ever-increasing profits from the floating of companies, issue of stock, state loans, etc., strengthens the domination of the financial oligarchy, and levies tribute upon the whole of society for the benefit of monopolists. Here is an example, taken from a multitude of others, of the business methods of the American trusts, quoted by Hilferding. In 1887, Havemeyer founded the Sugar Trust by amalgamating 15 small firms, whose total capital amounted to $6,500,000. Suitably watered, as the Americans say, the capital of the trust was declared to be $50 million. This overcapitalization anticipated the monopoly profits in the same way as the United States Steel Corporation anticipates its monopoly profits in buying up as many iron ore fields as possible. In fact, the Sugar Trust set up monopoly prices, which secured it such profits that it could pay 10% dividend on capital watered sevenfold, or about 70% on the capital actually invested at the time the trust was formed. In 1909, the capital of the Sugar Trust amounted to $90 million. In 22 years, it had increased its capital more than tenfold. In France, the domination of the financial oligarchy, in parentheses, against the financial oligarchy in France, the title of the well-known book by Lysis, the fifth edition of which was published in 1908, close parentheses, assumed a form that was only slightly different. Four of the most powerful banks enjoy not a relative, but an absolute monopoly in the issue of bonds. In reality, this is a trust of big banks, and monopoly ensures monopoly profits from bond issues. Usually, a borrowing country does not get more than 90% of the sum of the loan. The remaining 10% goes to the banks and other middlemen. The profit made by the banks out of the Russo-Chinese loan of 400 million francs amounted to 8%. Out of the Russian 1904 loan of 800 million francs, the profit amounted to 10%, and out of the Moroccan 1904 loan of 62,500,000 francs, it amounted to 18.75%. Capitalism, which began its development with petty usury capital, is ending its development with gigantic usury capital. The French, says Lysis, are the usurers of Europe. All the conditions of economic life are being profoundly modified by this transformation of capitalism. With a stationary population and stagnant industry, commerce, and shipping, the country can grow rich by usury. 50 persons, representing a capital of 8 million francs, can control 2,000 million francs deposited in four banks. The holding system, with which we are already familiar, leads to the same result. One of the biggest banks, the Société Générale, for instance, issues 64,000 bonds for its daughter company, the Egyptian Sugar Refineries. The bonds are issued at 150%, i.e. the bank gains 50 centimes on the franc. The dividends of the new company were found to be fictitious. The public lost from 90 to 100 million francs. 
one of the directors of the Société Générale, was a member of the board of directors of the sugar refineries. It is not surprising that the author is driven to the conclusion that the French Republic is a financial monarchy. It is the complete domination of financial oligarchy. The latter dominates over the press and the government. Put a pin in that. We will aim to finish chapter 3 in the next installment. And I'll spare you the Patreon pitch this time, so just, you know, enjoy your epoch, would you?